This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is the musician Derek Webb. Derek started his career as a member of the popular band Caveman's Call and has also spent the last decade or so producing his own solo albums. In the first half of this extended conversation, Derek and I talk about his experience within the CCM industry, and then in the second half, we talk about his most recent album, Fingers Crossed. The response to that album led Derek to start a podcast of his own called The Airing of Grief, to share interviews with people who've left their faith of origin behind and help provide the catharsis needed by expressing that pain and grief for others to hear. Both the album and the podcast are wonderful, so please visit the URLs to both in the show notes for this episode to buy his music and subscribe to his podcast. Now, if this is your first time listening to Exvangelical, please go ahead and hit subscribe and dive into the back catalog. You'll find interviews with all sorts of artists, musicians, authors, bloggers, podcasters, activists, and private individuals who've told their own stories of leaving evangelicalism. You can also join the Exvangelical Facebook group to find other like-minded folks to meet or listen to, or talk to, commiserate with, tell jokes with. It's a really lively uh, community, and uh, if you would benefit from that, please look it up and join it. We have nearly 2,000 members to date, and it's just a wonderful community. If you want to if you enjoy this show and do want to support it, you can do so in three different ways. First, you can support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, which will help boost the show. And finally, you can tell others about the show. If you know someone who can benefit from hearing others tell their stories of coming to terms with the messed up subculture that is evangelicalism, please do so. Every little bit helps. As a last note, if you're into Twitter, you can follow me there at BRChastain, and you can follow the show at ExvangelicalPod. All right, everyone, let's get into it. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Derek Webb. He is a musician, an entrepreneur, and most recently, a podcaster. <laughs> um, I'm very yeah. excited to talk to him, so welcome to the show, Derek. Oh, man, it's just a pleasure to get to talk to you. Thank you, thank you, likewise. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people already know you because you are a um, a well-known musician. Um you've been you've been performing for what over 15 20 years something yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, my my first band was uh was it was this Texas based um folk kind of band called Cadman's Call and we, and we started that band in like 92. So it's been oh, a long wow. time. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so a lot of people do do know know you and, and know you from your music, but, um, let's get, sort of get into a little bit about where you grew up and, um, yeah. and just learn a little bit about that as well as sort of what your initial like uh, religious upbringing was like as well. Yeah. So I, uh, grew up in the South. Um, and so I feel like that I could probably just stop. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, grew up, I grew up in the South. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. And, um, and grew up with parents who were 
religiously concerned, but not really religiously active. So my mom kind of, my mom grew up, um, kind of, uh, what was it? Was she, I always get this wrong. I always, I, I, I would usually say that she, that my mom grew up Baptist and my dad grew up Catholic. I know I'm right about my dad. My mom might've actually grown up Methodist, but my, my mom grew up kind of mainline, you know, kind of Protestant. And mm-hmm. my dad grew up in a very Catholic, very, very, uh, um, you know, kind of serious Catholic family. They had, um, some, some pretty highfalutin church leadership in their, in their family. And so, um, and he went to Catholic school and that sort of thing. And my mom grew up playing, um, from when she was really little, grew up playing the organ, um, and help and like being part of the music, like helping lead, you know, the music and, um, in her church. And so when it came to my, my, me and my brother, I have a one brother who is almost four years older than me. And so when it came to us, they definitely raised us in church and we, we mostly went to Methodist church with, which I've always kind of thought of at least the kind of Methodist churches we were going to felt to me like a bit of compromise between how they both kind of came up. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely important to them in terms of, um, them clearly thinking that it was a good way a good thing to believe and a good way to grow up. And, um, so we always went to church. We, we weren't super involved or anything, but we went, um, you know, weekly and, um, and I grew up going to like Sunday school and then youth group and went to the church that I, where I went in Memphis, which was a, a United Methodist church, um, for those who are, interested in that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> I actually went to school there also. They had a, they had a private school. So I went first through sixth grade to that school also. So that involved like going to chapel a couple times a week and kind of regular Bible teaching and that sort of thing. And so, uh, but my, but my parents, I mean, I like, I like my parents a lot. Like we're, I'm really close to my parents and I kind of like how they did it. I mean, I, I'm, I don't think it was an especially bad way to grow up being in, in church and that being for me, um, some kind of a social anchor for yeah. me. Like I, I, I was a pretty awkward kid, like everything that, that is valued during your adolescence, um, all those things, social, academic sports, um, you know, all the things that are kind of being examined and measured. Um, I was terrible at all those things. And so, but I was good at music from when I was really little, like I'm, I'm in my early forties now. And so I'm pretty self-aware. I'm pre- I, I know myself pretty well. And I'm not good at hardly anything. I'm, I'm terrible at most things, but, but there are a few things that I'm good at and the few things I'm good at, I'm super good at. And I know what they are and I'm not shy about it. And, and from when I was really young, I mean, I have to emphasize those things because mostly I'm horrible at everything. And so, um, uh, the, the, the things that I have found over my many years that I have found came easy, um, for me, I have really latched onto, um, mm-hmm. and really grabbed, you know, and held, um, and, and music was that for me when I was really young, five, six, seven years old. And, but I was an awkward kid. Like I, and I didn't fit in very well. And so church, growing up going to those 
kind of youth groups and, and Sunday school deals. Like that was, it was, a, it was nice. It, 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 it was like the other kids like had to hang out with me right. because we were all there kind of stuck. And as I think about it, it was kind of equalizing. It, it was kind of um, because no matter where we all came from or, or who we were in school, anybody who grew up in, in church or going to like youth group and stuff, you know that it, it, it's a different thing than everything else you're doing. Right. Um, so it kind of sets everybody off their game a little bit. So if you're like a really great sports type or you're a really beautiful girl or you're a really high achieving, you know, um, academic type, none of that really matters when you get into Sunday school. Like it's, everybody's just kind of looking at each other, like not really sure what's going on. And like, um, so, um, so that was good. That was an okay thing for me. And, um, and, and it was by way of that, that as I got out of, and that was kind of my, so that, so I grew up with it casually and then halfway through high school had like a conversion experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I was mixed up in young life, which is, um, a high school parachurch organization, like a non-denominational parachurch organization and wound up going to young life. Um, my brother was real involved in it and he, um, kind of pulled me into that. And, and that was a pretty cool thing too. And, and it was cool because, um, the guy who was the young life leader in my area. Now at this time I was in Texas. So right around, just before high school, I moved, my family moved to Texas. So I was living in Houston, uh, still in the South. Um, and so, uh, the guy who was the, the leader was this really peculiar, fascinating guy. He was an, a highly intellectual. Um, he was kind of, kind of nerdy. Like he was like, and, and like in a way that I really admired and thought was really cool and like a real thinker. Um, and as I have gone on, realized like kind of not, in my opinion, a super typical kind of young life leader type. He wasn't like really cool and really, he, I mean, he was extroverted, but he was really more of a thinker. And I really liked that. And, and he was very intuitive and he could see about me that I was, that music was a, was the biggest part of my life. And that he, he knew that was a good thing to anchor me in to young life. And he was right. And so it, it, it gave me like a, a musical identity. I grew up playing in bands my whole life. I grew up playing in, in rock cover bands and whatnot, like, and was kind of confused about what to do with music around when I got saved in probably after my sophomore year, like high school, I, I didn't really know. And, and so I kind of hit the, hit the brakes for a second. Cause I was like, can I go on being in these bands or, because you're kind of hearing the narrative that like, this is a moment where you need to take stock and take inventory and maybe change some thing, maybe make some changes uh, right. in your friend group. And, and so I remember thinking, and so, and, and that sometimes those changes can be real watershed kind of moments. Right. And those can be moments where you feel like you either pulled a flag up out of the ground or put one down. And, and I remember thinking, I think I need to make a change. I think I need to quit this band. And I was in a really, a really good band actually at that time in high school. But, um, and, uh, but I was kind of 
pumping the brakes on that. And that was right around when I got mixed up in Young Life and got pulled in to play music for that, which was a great thing for me. It, it was a real confidence booster. And it gave me, you know, every, once a week, every week I was up in front of my, not my friends, but people who would, some of whom would go on to be some of my friends. And, um, but people who were going through that same experience. And I had a thing that I could do that, um, where most of them had clear, um, gifts or, you know, were cool or whatever. And I wasn't, it gave me some, it gave me something, it gave me an identifier. And that was, I really appreciated that. And those were, those were great times. And I, I went to, um, all the summers I went to those young life camps and, um, did those trips, ski trips and summer trips. And, and it was great, honestly. I mean, I'm, I really enjoyed that and I enjoyed the friends that I made and that was all pretty cool. And, and then by the end of high school, um, uh, kind of didn't go to college, but almost did, but, but really kind of didn't. And, um, <laughs> uh, but, but, but the, the kind of big life changing moment right then was, um, that a friend of mine that I'd gone to high school with, who, who was a little older than me and who was also mixed up in young life. Um, he, I knew he was like in really into cool music, but what I didn't know is that he was an unbelievable songwriter. I didn't know this about him, but we were, we were friends and he was a little older than me. We had friends in common who were between our two ages. Cause he was two years, uh, my, my senior. And so I got a random call from him. What would have been my freshman semester of college. And I, I would, I kind of dabbled in community college in Houston for a minute, but didn't, it didn't stick. I didn't stay. And, but during that time he called me and asked me, um, if I wanted to join a band and I was like, uh, and I, it had been a minute since I'd been in a band cause I was still trying to sort that out with my newfound faith or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and so he told me this story about how there was this guy who he met cause he was at, um, uh, um, uh, TCU, Texas Christian university. He was at, um, TCU, um, in Fort Worth and met this guy who was also from Houston, who over as the mythology goes around the way our band started, he, this other guy walked past my friend's dorm room and heard him playing some of his songs and walked in and was like, wow, these are super good songs. Are you, you know, what do you do with that? And my friend was like, I don't do anything with it. You know, I'm just, I write them and that's it. End of, and this other guy was like, well, like, these are super good songs and you should, you know, you should play them. Do you want to, you know, start a, do you want to start a band or anything? And the, and my friend said no. And cause he wasn't really much of a musician. He was just a kind of a savant songwriter. And so this other guy said, well, could I start a band and play your songs? <laughs> like, I mean, he was just, he was kind of an opportunist, but he was really smart and he was a visionary and he saw an opportunity. So, and my friend said, uh, Aaron Tate is his name, my friend, Aaron. And so Aaron said, yeah, that's, that's cool. You know, if you, I guess if you want to. And so this other guy, um, Cliff, Cliff Young is his name said, okay, awesome. Can you introduce me to any musicians? <laughs> he was like, had no idea. how to start <laughs> And he himself had only just started playing guitar. And so Aaron's first thought was to call me because I was, had somewhat of a reputation by the end of high school for being, um, a musician. I'd been in a bunch of bands and so, um, and I was into, into the same kind of music, kind of, uh, contemporary folk music, Indigo Girls, um, that sort of thing. And 
So he called me and said, can I introduce you to this guy, Cliff? And he wants to play my songs and start a band. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. Like, so <laughs> met up with this guy, Cliff, and heard a bunch of Aaron songs, which were really tremendous, remarkable, good songs. And, and we hit it off. And, and what, could it, what could be a very long story short, um, we started, uh, we found a few handful of other musicians and started uh, this band, Cademan's Call. Um, this was in 92. And so we were based in Houston. Um, this was pre-internet as you might calculate, um, from, from the year, but we were an indie band and, um, Cliff's dad was the pastor is still the pastor of a really, really big kind of pre mega church, mega church in, in Houston, um, second Baptist church. It's a very, um, kind of more old school, big choir, um, you know, robes, um, old school preacher, kind of Southern Baptist megachurch. And, um, and so Cliff's dad was the pastor there and his brothers were both, um, you know, Baptist, uh, ministers or whatever. And he was kind of resisting the family business though. And so he, um, was looking to play music and, but because that church had all these amazing resources. They had a recording studio for God's sake in in their church in the early nineties. That was pretty unheard of. It was, it was cost prohibitive to be able to make a record without a record deal. That's why no, there was no middle class, um, until after Napster, you know? And so, um, but we, um, we were able to record some of our music and, and within a few years had a couple of indie, records out and we're starting to tour and cause, cause we were college age and all our friends were in Texas colleges and there's a bajillion colleges in Texas. So you can make a pretty full time gig out of just touring around Texas colleges. And we were doing that and, and then wound up getting signed, um, to an imprint of Warner brothers a few years later. And, and, um, and that was a 10 year, that was a 10 year run with that band. And, it, and, and we put out, I don't know, six or seven or eight records and we sold into the millions of records and um back when bands could do that um bands like us anyways and so uh and those were great years and we wound up you know we toured um mostly colleges but some churches and um and you know uh wound up getting marketed to the christian music world because the record labels that we were signed to um, by no fault of their own, this is their job. Their job was to sell our records. Um, and as they were looking for some way to market us, they realized that most of us were, you know, kind of Christians and that was the way we saw the world. And so they thought, well, that'd be a great way to market you guys. And, and, and that really worked. And so we, we had like a lot of success in the Christian music world. Um, and we were on a label with bands like Jars of Clay and, and Third Day and, um, Mm you know, and, and like cool bands who were doing, who, who were making a great run at it and having a lot of success at that time. And yeah, so I worked in a Christian bookstore then, right? Oh, is that right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so records might have crossed your path. Oh and, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Like uh, long line of levers was, uh, yeah. was a huge album for me. Personally. Oh, that's crazy. That's so, what a small <laughs> world, man. Well, yeah. And so, so that all kind of happened and, and that was all, you know, that was cool. I mean, it, those were great years and, um, and it was fun because that, those were kind of my call. I kind of think of those as my college years. Um, those 10 years we spent touring and putting records out and, and then got married around the early two thousands and left the band at that same time. 
I decided 10 years was, was a long time and, and had started to find my own voice as a writer and started to kind of find my courage a little bit. And, and you spend 10 years playing in the, in the Christian music scene and you wind up with a lot of stories and you wind up with a lot of questions and you wind up with a lot of, um, uh, a lot of laundry that you want to, that you want to air out and things you want to talk about. And, or I did anyways. And so, um, yeah, if, uh, if, if you're able, could you expound on that a little bit? Cause I think that's something that a lot yeah. of people are, are curious about is sort of the machinations of CCM yeah. as sort of an industry, as well as like what it, um, what it sort of like, honestly, what sort of does to people, the sort of expectations it puts on the performers, yes. um, to be, well, yeah, no, that's a great, no, I'm, I'm happy to. And I mean, what's weird about it is you kind of wind up in this odd position of being like a professional Christian. Yeah. And so that's why like for people on the outside who don't know all the ins and outs, it, I would guess it would be pretty confusing over the years to hear about kind of scandals in the Christian music world and then hear about Christians and kind of Christian retail and the, the Christian music scene kind of turning their back because you're like, I thought that was the one thing you guys all claim to have in common was the fact that you're all fuck ups, you know, like you're all (laughs) right. Like you're all sinful or whatever. Why are you, why, why are you turning on somebody for the fact that, that they, it turns out it wasn't false advertising. It turns out they were telling you the truth. Like you like people to talk about how they're sinful. You just don't want them to actually be sinful. Like you don't want them, you don't want to ever hear about it in public, but you love people who anecdotally confess. You just don't want, you don't want it to be real. Right. And because that's happened, you know, it happened to Amy Grant. It happened to Michael English. It's happened to a handful of people. And I'm getting real deep in the weeds here now because Uh, some, (laughs) but um, anyways, Ray Bolts. Yeah. Ray Bolts. Um, That's exactly right. And others. And, um, uh, uh, Kevin Max is a super good pal of mine. He was in a band called DC talk and he never got ostracized, but he definitely was, an odd fit in that world. And and that came down hard on him too, um, in like the nineties. And, um, yeah. but, but anyways, so that's kind of this odd role that you wind up in. And, and as I said, you know, like Christian in my, and I, I hope not to rabbit trail too much here, but you know, Christian practice as I understand it is, or should be, or at its best could be like, recovery. It should be like an AA meeting. It should be a a group of people gathering together with only one thing in common, and that's that they need to be restored and healed and helped. And even the guy in the front getting up and saying, hey, I'm so-and-so, and and just like you, I'm a sinner, and let's all go get, you know, healed together. I mean, that's, you know, and and yet most Christian, uh, um, most kind of communal Christian practice is more like an Amway convention than a, than an AA meeting. Yeah. It's more like we've got a product to sell you and everybody gather around. Right. Um, and we're actually going to make evangelists of our product out of all of you. And then it becomes like a pyramid scheme and like all of you go make converts and those converts make converts and it all trickles back up to the top. And, mm-hmm. and so in practice, it's odd. Um, at its root, I think it has it has promised maybe, um, the practice of it, the practice of it. And so, um, and yet that being true, there's this weird pressure as one might imagine to 
um, again, to kind of carefully craft language that talks about how, oh, I'm a sinner just like everybody else, but really discourages or even punishes behavior that proves that out. Yeah. And um, so it puts you in an odd position. Right. Because, you know, the job of an artist as I see it, as I've always considered it for myself, is to look at the world and describe it. Look at the world, tell people what you see. That's the job description. And yet you wind up under a lot of pressure to not exactly do that. You can't really do it because if you're completely honest, then you're going to wind up out of the typical territory that Christian, that the Christian kind of uh, machine or industry is comfortable with. Yeah, because it would damage your witness. It would not only damage <laughs> your witness, I think that's true, but more importantly, interestingly, it would damage the mechanisms by which Christian product is distributed. That seemed to me where I always seemed to hit the guardrail. It wasn't ever like, oh, we're worried about your reputation and what people are going to think of you whenever I pushed boundaries in my career during those years. It seemed the pushback that I got was more, hey, man, like, listen, we're with you on this and we get what you're saying and we like that you're a rabble rouser, but like, we can't put this record out and you saying this or you attacking, not attacking, but calling into question, um, asking questions about the church's, your own and therefore the church's politics and your own and therefore the church's views on um, homosexuality or, um, uh, um, you know, loving your neighbor radically um, you know, pacifism, nonviolence. Uh, we can't, we can't put your records out down the same pipeline that we're trying to put out Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir or, yeah. you know, Mercy Me or, I mean, some of these bands that are actually are good friends of mine that I think are making cool music, but that are very explicit in the way they use Christian language. They're like the labels, and the distributors were just like, listen, we can't, we just can't do it because if, if we fight for and put your record out, then they're going to punish us when it comes time to put out the next big Christian record that we've got to put out, which is the majority of what they were doing, you know? Right. And yeah, so, it, so like it the would, bookstores and the, that's right. And, and it would damage itself. Yeah. Yeah. It would clog and damage the pipes. Um, that was really more the concern that I ever got. Like the labels never claimed to be, or ever functioned as, a moral guardrail or anything like that. Like, Hey man, I don't know. You know, it was always like, uh, we don't know. That's cool. Or we get it and we support it like between you and me, but we've kind of got a business to run here and, you know, stop, stop, you know, um, making that difficult. So that was really more what it was. Um, and so, uh, you know, but, but back to your question of like how that kind of works, it does, it does make things pretty, pretty complicated because if you want to even really do what I would consider an, a Christian artist's job, which I think any artist's job, and especially a Christian artist's job, in my opinion, has a very prophetic 
kind of element to it, which, and all I mean by that is like the speaking of truth to power. Mm-hmm. I think it's super important. I think that, I think that Jesus as a character was doing that constantly. That's what got him in so much trouble was that he spoke truth to power and he represented, in my opinion, kind of the upside down, it was an upside down power economy of power. Um, mm-hmm. he, was, he was poor, he was, um, you know, and, and all these other things. And yet he would call the rich into question and the politically strong into question and things like that. And so it seems to me that Christian artists would, and really any artist, I mean, it's at least available to you to do it. And I think there is implicitly a, a prophetic element to art, but for Christian artists, I always kind of felt like that might be kind of important. Yeah. Um, and, and yet as you, as you try to do that, if you try, you find yourself quickly being pushed to the fringes, if not to the other side and have to hurl that over the wall. Right. Um, which is weird and it's a bummer. And so it, they don't really reward the doing of the job. Um, at least the way that I always felt like the job could or should be done. And, and, just, and, and so just out of curiosity, is that why a lot of people um, in the late 90s started moving to primarily worship albums? Because that, uh-huh. I mean, because honestly, like I, like I remember, like I was at this, I was, I was working and I was really into youth group culture right when I thought it was like a really fertile time for Christian music. Uh, and, um, all of a sudden in those last few years, like all these bands that made great original music just shifted to, to worship music. Um, was that, was that sort of a byproduct of that sort of thinking and uh, like a, yeah, Yeah, I think maybe so. I, I think that, um, I have a story, um, that I will tell you that is my suspicion for why that happened. But I can tell you that like before that time, Christian music was mostly just bad, but it, <laughs> but it wasn't offensive necessarily to me as a, at that time, as a believer in it, mm-hmm. it was just bad. It was like people writing kind of not great songs that were passable because you could get a, a record deal with a Christian company if you had a really great, if you were really sweet person and had a really great testimony and were passable musically. And especially if you were kind of a designer imposter of something that was on secular radio, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. If you were like a Christian version, a Christian alternative to something that was popular, you could for sure get a record deal. And, um, and so as a result, the, you know, the, the Christian business on the whole was, was putting out stuff that was a little substandard to me. It wasn't, it it definitely wasn't good compared to, uh, forgive a lot of, uh, spiritually coded language here, but it it wasn't especially good compared to like, let's say the, the creative mandate in the, in the beginning of Gem in the beginning of Genesis to, um, you know, in other words, to make art about everything Jesus is Lord of and to, um, to go and kind of, redeem all things, um, and to, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, the whole first chapter of the Bible is God making everything out of nothing supposedly. Yeah. And, um, so the first thing that you learn about God, if you read the Bible, at least if you read it in the sequence that most Bibles are, are in, which is not necessarily chronological, but is that God was creative 
he in the in the beginning God made, and then blah 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 blah. And so he was creative. He made all things out of nothing. He was a good artist apparently because everything he made was very good in his estimation. And so as image bearers, again coded language, forgive me for that. But as you know, ambassador, uh, God's ambassadors to culture, um, made in His image, so to speak, then we should be the people making the best, most creative and original art in the scene. And yet we were the ones kind of making the stuff a couple years after it was cool on general market radio, there'd be like a Christian band who would do something kind of like it so that youth leaders had something to suggest to their kids instead of listening to the, to the secular bands. Right. And so, uh, you know, so, so that I, I, for a long time was what Christian music was. It was not great, but it was a kind of sugar-free alternative if you were looking for one. And if you felt like morally you needed to not listen to anything but Christian music or whatever, which really is just a marketing term. I mean, I won't spend any time on this, but the phrase I like to use is that the word Christian, um, when used to describe anything other than a human being is a marketing term. (laughs) um that's and and it which doesn't it isn't to which is not to say that it's not helpful when used to describe other things it just can't mean what it means when people use it to describe people only people um have souls that can be saved only the redeemed people are supposedly the ones in heaven but the redeemed music i mean like christian music christian bookstores christian education christian breath mints none of that stuff just because someone rubber stamped it as Christian, which is really just a marketing term, does not mean that that's the only stuff that's going to be in heaven. The right. same way that people talk about um, humans, and so, but um, but Christian music, which is again is a is a fiction, it's not a real thing. Um, it you know was uh, was mostly just kind of benign and and um, designer imposter and that sort of thing. What happened was. Sometime in the 90s, as you said, there was this pivot, and a lot of the Christian music, at least what was on the radio, started to become this worship music, which, which I prefer to call worship product is really what it, what it is mm-hmm. and um, is a, a good a more descriptive for me. And, yeah. and so what happened was – and it was all this it, – and it's, it's the only thing that's on Christian radio now um, if you, if you – um, for some reason, want to tune in and find Christian radio. Mostly, what you'll hear sounds like songs that could be sang by a congregation in churches. They're not performed in a way that would be easy for congregations to sing because they're sang they're, they're being sung by, you know, great singers. And so then, and most great singers don't know how to um, square up their melodies and, and make it more uh, make it easier for congregations to sing. That's a whole different set of skills, in my opinion. But that's the content. That's the language. It's a lot of, you know whatever it is, a lot of that kind of stuff. And here's what I think happened. And I haven't really, I don't know if I've really, I don't know if I've told this story very much, but, um, but I was kind of, you know, our band was kind of there watching the sausage get made a little bit in this moment. Yeah. And we were on this label with, as I said, jars of clay and third day and plum and all star United, a lot of cool bands. And so I remember the day that we went into, um, the, we were had, we had a meeting at the label and we went in and, and it was maybe that same week or, something that the the VP that that was our guy there was telling us that he had m- met with the third day guys and the third day guys 
Um, you know, Mac Powell, who's the lead singer of Third Day, very, super good guy, sweet guy, really pastoral, really has that in him in terms of his, his wiring. And, um, and he and those guys had been talking to the label about the fact that at the end of their shows they were doing, they would include some of these praise choruses. And the thing is, at the time, worship music was not a thing. It wasn't. It was, it was used in church services, but it wasn't a thing. Like bands didn't like play worship songs for people, like other than in that environment. And but at these third day shows, they would play a couple of worship songs at the end, and it was just this cool thing they were doing, this bonding moment, and their their fans really loved it. And Mac was kind of basically saying, you know, this is a thing that is. Um, is organically happening and, and we'd like to record a bunch of them. And we've even kind of, we're starting to write some and we, we'd like to, um, record some worship songs and put that out as our next record. And the label basically said, we think that's the stupidest idea we've ever heard. Like that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no one's going to buy that. Um, it's so niche. Like if you guys want to do that, you know, you can spend your own money to do it. We won't really get behind it, but we'll, we'll, we'll drop it in our, in our distribution. But, um, you guys are kind of be on your own because we don't really see that making any sense or making financial sense. We just don't think it'll sell. Um, but be our guest if you want to go do something, you know? And so they did, they recorded a lot of live stuff, but recorded this record that they called offerings. And it was a lot of live performance stuff and it was some other songs. And, they turned it in and, and the label put it out thinking it would just drop like a rock. And I could be wrong, but I think it was maybe third day's biggest selling record up to that point. I mean, it really took off. It was just a huge moment and a real surprise to everybody. And everybody just loved it. And they weren't necessarily the first ones to record worship choruses, but it was a turning point. It was a, it was a watershed and, and nobody saw it coming. And, Basically, within the year, the label had come to every other band on that label um, and basically said, so we need everybody to record a worship record hmm. because that is selling like hotcakes. And again, it's just – it's like you know, there might – a lot of people like to make this divide about Christian and secular, whatever that means. Um, my friend David Dark is fond of saying that there's – arguably not a, a secular molecule in the universe. Um, I might even <laughs> argue, I might, I might argue the other, uh, the other side that maybe there's <laughs> only secular molecules in the universe, but I love David and I love the way his brain works and he's a guy I respect a lot. But, um, but anyways, I think that it, that is to say, I think the divide is ridiculous and doesn't make any sense. And I think it's all about marketing and fear and, and capitalism. Um, but, that's really what it was about. They were like, we just think that's this, you guys, this is what's going to sell. Some of you guys and some of you bands, some of these bands, you've been, you know, kind of fighting for a hit for a couple of years. You haven't really found one. We're just telling you, this is what you got to do. And so they were pressuring, you know, not pressuring, but kind of pressuring everybody into putting out worship records. That's right around the time that I left Cademan's. Um, because it was part of, what, what, who we were kind of organically, but it wasn't ever really part of our music up in, to a certain point. And then the band decided to do that because it's like, well, if we don't put out a worship record, then the label won't let us put out the next record we want to put out. So it's kind of one for you, one for me. And hmm. so the band did it. And, and I, re, and I understood why, and I respected that, that decision. But again, I was getting married around that time and it makes you take inventory of how, you know, 
of what you're doing and the time you're spending on what. And, um, so it felt like the right moment, but in my opinion, I think it could all be third day's fault. I I think, uh, (laughs) I think that they found a market for that and, and kind of vetted the market and determined that, wow, okay, people will pay a lot of money for worship music. And I think that's, that, that was at least a a major factor in lighting the fuse on that. But, Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't like the restraints that our band, um, had experienced in terms of the content that we were talking about before. There was, you know, 90 some odd percent of all Christian art, I'm using finger quotes, um, is about, you know, just a few things. It's about kind of transcendent moments of worship and the afterlife. That's mostly what it's all about now and not much else. And so you kind of find yourself in a little bit of no man's land when you want to write about other things. And I was very interested in politics and sexuality and war and a lot of things and didn't really find a lot of places to put that, especially the bigger our band got, because what happened to us and what happens to a lot of bands, and this isn't just a problem for Christian bands. This is what happens to every, any band that gets popular um, or has a moment of success is that you get, when you first start out, you're really low to the ground. Everything's organic. You're trusting your instincts. Any popularity that you find is usually based on your trusting those instincts. And then something happens and you get and your platform gets tall, gets taller and it rises. Sometimes it rises really fast. And then all of a sudden you find yourself quickly in the platform building business mm-hmm. and the platform sustaining business. And the higher that platform gets, the the harder and harder and harder it gets to really do the job that that puts you there, which is to look at the world and describe it and to be super honest about what you see and to to disrupt if need be and to challenge status quo if need be. The higher that platform gets and, and the more livelihoods are tied to that platform being tall and stable, you you find yourself terrified to ever ascend it again to say anything on top of it that could get you knocked down or it knocked over. So it makes the job really hard, especially trying to be an artist who's got some kind of a, a, a spirit, like a religious worldview. And I just found myself uncomfortably atop such a platform, you know, in Cademans because we'd gotten popular. And so it, it felt like a good time to start over. And because um, I was writing songs increasingly that didn't fit and, and felt like too big of a risk for our band because we had a lot of people paying attention and and I was wanting to say things that were a little more complicated, a little more nuanced on some of those topics. And so that's what kind of led me into my solo career. I, I mean, that that is 20 more minutes than you needed on that. But, but <laughs> no, um, that's great. I, I but think... interestingly, it's a thing that it's it's a thing that in that kind of detail, I don't really feel like I've ever really recounted. And so it's it's interesting, even for me, considering the conversations you typically have with people about kind of faith journeys, you know, in and out. It, it, if there's significant things in there, then I'd, I'd rather have them on the record. But, um, yeah, and so that's what started me in my solo career, which, um, which started, you know, in a strange way because my first record didn't get carried in a lot of Christian bookstores for language and content because I was getting into complex parts of the Bible that talked about, you know, 
the church being um, adulterous and, you know, like Ezekiel 16, where it talks about the church, God's people being a whore. And it's like, there's, there's rough language back there. And, um, and about idolatry and about kind of the, the language of the prophets and stuff. And that sort of thing, you know, um, gets you a tricky water pretty quick. And so my, but I had the, the, the wind at my back of having spent 10 years in a pretty popular Christian band. So I had a lot of support out of the gate. So I was able to navigate my early solo career in a way that, that with a luxury that most artists wouldn't have, because I had a lot of people who would support me and who would come out and see me play. And cause I was coming off of that band. And so, mm-hmm. um, so I, and I, so I spent that currency, that, that currency pretty wisely or, or, or pretty, I was wisely was not the right word. I, I, I was, um, careful with it and I, and I was intentional about what I wanted to do with it because, um, I knew I would only have a finite amount of it before people, before I would get ultimately kind of shoved out of the circle. But, yeah. um, yeah. yeah. And, and so I, so I spent a lot of those, so my, my, the years of my solo career making records about that stuff, about, you know, I, I would, I, I've got whole records about race and sexuality and war and peace and politics and idolatry and all that sort of stuff. So, right. you know, um, so, and that's kind of been the hallmark of my solo career, which I'm still in, but I'm, I'm just in a new season of, of belief or disbelief. But, um, that, that's kind of the reputation that I got. And to the point where my people actually would be disappointed if I didn't, um, upset them with some, uh, you know, kind of gnawing at the hand that was feeding me during a lot of those years. And so I got comfortable at that. first solo album that she must and shall go free i I think it did i uh, i think it did have that sort of quality that you alluded to with the sort of um people that knew you from cademans i like i I think that there there were i like especially from um just talking as a fan like going from um long line of levers like and like the songs that that stood out to me on that album were your songs, like the "What You Want" and "Dance." Like those were the yeah, ones so that, cool, man. <laughs> like those were the ones that that really stood out to me. And then yeah. you know, at you're you're sort of d- leaving the band, and then that album coming out uh, sort of, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, it it lined up just within my particular narrative because it was like mm. right around the time when. I was on Christian college campus and the Iraq war was happening and I disagreed with that. Right. <laughs> like there's all this shit happening. And That's then right. so, and then I, you know, uh, I go back to, uh, back to my hometown for the summer 
And then someone in, uh, someone that I played in like our youth worship band and was like, did you know that Derek Webb like has this album where he, where he calls the church a whore? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so it did have like a, like an edgy quality to it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in that sort of way that I think only people from this particular culture understand what edgy means. You know, it's like, <laughs> right, exactly. Like, wow, you said horror. Yeah, I hate the controversy. You know, yeah, it's like, that's it's like, totally right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like, but but that I mean, to, to your point, like I, I think that you did do that well. You like you you stepped out and you you made some statements that uh, that within those particular um, confines are really really controversial. You know, it's not, um, and I think he, I think the year that it was, it certainly, it was, the internet was still really early. I mean, it hadn't even been 10 yes. years. I think they, they, they consider the beginning of like the modern internet at like 96. So it hadn't even been 10 years. Um, but it was like getting out there. And, uh, anyways, um, so that is super interesting that that, to hear from you, that that is like where you were and that that's what you were processing through your music then and throughout the subsequent albums as well. Yeah. I just feel like I went into my solo career with just like an irrational bravery (laughs) because of the combination of having come out of Cademan's for 10 years and the success that we had 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 and being newly married, which, you know, suddenly, you know, providing this support that you've never had in your life before in, in that, that feels quite like that does. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly I was like, oh, I could do anything because what's the worst that could happen? You know, because you know that somebody's got your back. Um, and and that's not the only way to feel that way, but but it was it was it was pretty life changing for me at that time. And um, and so I think those things all combined just set me on this trajectory of like, man, I'm going to spend every dime of this currency really carefully, and I'm going to just really dig this thing up by the root. Um, and, you know, and so it was. Uh, which I feel like I'm pretty well suited for. Like I'm, I'm wired to be pretty contrary. Like I'm, 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 I play devil's advocate very easily and very naturally and primarily with myself, you know, like I'm, I'm, I, I feel like I got a little bit of a, of a bad reputation for just giving the church shit a lot for a lot of those years. And, and I think that may, that may be true. It may be a little inarguable if you look at the records, but Ultimately, that was not my intention. It wasn't my intention to do that any more than it was to be intentionally provocative. It was, I was in my crosshairs. And I was the one mainly that I was going after and that I was, um, you know, who I, I, it, was, it was my own conventions and beliefs that I was really going after. And anybody who was particularly resonant with me or my story or how I grew up or whatever would probably find themselves resonant also with those records and maybe join me in those crosshairs. But I was the one that I was always really attacking. I was the one that I was going after. And, um, so for that reason, you kind of never run out of material and, um, you know, cause I live with myself every day and, uh, yeah, but, but, and so it came pretty easy to me is the point right. I think I'm trying to make is that I, I spent those years, it was just easy. I would just look around and whatever would either get me really excited or really angry or really worked up, that's what I was making records about during all those years. And that was kind of a pretty solid 10 years that I, another 10 years, you know, that of my solo career making records 
kind of leaving breadcrumbs along my spiritual journey during all that time. And if you look at, if you, if you go through those records, you'll have a very clear sense of what really hit me the previous year and that I wound up making a record about, like be it, you know, when I really got into, um, the theology of, uh, you know, um, pacifism and nonviolence or when I, when the, when, when I finally ran out of runway to give excuses anymore to, uh, Christians in culture or the institution in general who, um, were judging and condemning my friends and family in a lot of cases who were in the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, that, that was a big one. And, um, and, um, and then even like cultural kind of critiquing, looking at the technology and how it was. And, and it just, whatever it was, I just kind of found myself just bouncing from one big set of issues to another. I was like really going after it and kind of felt that agitator critic role as kind of part of my job and ultimately kind of figuring out like what comes, what, what, what do I have a hard time with? What really frustrates me about myself? Let me write about that. And then anyone who resonates, you know, will, might buy it uh, or might be interested, but that kind of was the, the, that those are the coordinates I was following for all those years, you know, yeah. Prof- yeah, in, in my job. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you, do you feel like there's, I'm um, like, I, I feel like we're coming up on the next part of your story where there's like yeah. another clear marker in the, in the sand or in your life. Mm. Um, though, uh, and you, because I, um, what, tell me if I'm, if I have this wrong, <laughs> basically, oh, no, yeah, go, yeah, go for but, it. but basically, uh, it, like you for another 10 years after you left Cademan's a very successful, like CCM group, um, you moved on and you, you did your solo work, which still grappled with a lot of social and theological sorts of issues. So, mm-hmm. um, you had that sort of, uh, I, I, identity, even if it wasn't your own, it was like what your fans associated you with of being mm-hmm. like moving from being, uh, you know, cease like, uh, a, yeah. on a Christian label, which is like default evangelical to yep. like this sort of progressive Christian sort of stance. Yeah. Um, I was playing faster and looser with the language the further I went and I yeah. was, and I was resisting it and challenging it and testing it increasingly over all those years, the, yeah. the, the, the guardrails and the confines of kind of Christian art. I mean, that, I, I really have always considered that maybe part of what would be important for me doing more so for the artists who might come later and be a, far more popular than I ever have been in my career, but who might have needed some precedent or guidepost to give them some tiny bit of real estate upon which to stand and write songs that are more challenging, you know, than what's going on around them. Yeah. And so, so I considered it, I, I did, I, I did it pretty intentionally and considered it a pretty important part of my, my creative kind of work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, well now I, I definitely want to sort of talk about your most recent album and I, if, if that's too much of a segue, <laughs> let me nah, know. Um, it's great. But but you you have a your most recent album is called Fingers Crossed, 
And one of the um, one of the ways in which I've uh, I've heard it described by you is that it's like a tale of two divorces. Yeah. So that is um, that w- we haven't talked about either of those things yet in your story. Yes. But there there was a a personal divorce that happened in your life, and then also this more another personal one, but in a different way, more yep. within the spiritual sort of sense of understanding mm-hmm. your 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 understanding of and your worldview to use a very yep. loaded sort of evangelical yes. term. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's what this this album um really in, encapsulates for you. Um yes. and I I think so the the way in which I I learned about the album was actually when uh, when your Spirit Bears the Curse uh, video mm. came out, <laughs> and um, and so it like I think it was released on um, released on online, and then I was on Twitter, and uh, like uh, a prior guest and one of your friends, Jamie Lee Finch, like posted uh, about it, and so I saw my it. dearest pals <laughs> in the world. Yeah. Um, so I I saw that, and then like um, I just remember watching it for the first time. And like, I didn't necessarily know where it was going, um, but it. But once it once it finished, like, it was such a crazy sort of statement, and then like this great visual thing that I think only someone that has that like mm. lived experience can yes. can get and understand why it's subversive to those things, um, uh. and that sort of um, it seemed like in following you. Um, just online and seeing the sort of responses that were that were mm. coming in um, that did this album take people by surprise like that um, in such a sort of intense way? I think, well, so for people who, for the benefit of people who have not heard the song or seen the, the video or anything for it, just the, the super brief, um, I hate to like give a spoiler. Um, <laughs> yeah, spoiler the, the, alert. The, yeah, spoiler alert. But I, will, the, I will include the link in the show notes. Oh, so. great. Okay. Um, but, but I mean, basically, the song is written. I kind of, you know, it, so the, the whole fingers crossed record was written during and on at the very beginnings of the other side of my my spiritual deconstruction and my kind of leaving the faith. And, and, um, it's kind of my going public about that. And then also documenting my divorce from my ex-wife and, and who's an awesome artist. And so it was, it was a, you know, in very small circles, it was a, it was a, it was a semi-public kind of thing. And so the opening, the first song I released from the record is this, this song, the spirit bears the curse. And what I wanted to do, so I found myself as many do on the other side or in the throes of spiritual deconstruction and kind of, um, deconversion and kind of working my way out of and processing and figuring out, you know, how to feel about not, be- not believing. And, um, and as I was going through that, I found myself obviously not in churches or, or a church, um, and out of that situation, but, um, re congregating mostly in 
bars with, at least in Nashville, Tennessee, a lot of other people who found their way there for exactly the same reason. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, um, and having these amazing conversations and gathering in this one particular bar pretty often, um, with, uh, with a group of friends, um, all of us going through that at the same time. And, and there was just this moment where we were talking about how, um, you know, that was one thing we really loved about the church, the practice of Christianity was the congregating, the, the hanging out, the, the language and the shorthand that the church provides for you to basically articulate your shared experience and then a place to practice it um, mm-hmm. and a place to congregate. And we really missed that. And we thought, well, you know, that's, that's what we're doing now. And it's, you know, we're here in a bar or something, but you know, we're, we're partaking of the spirit, so to speak. And, <laughs> and we're, you know, we're, we might not have the bread, but we've got the wine and we're, um, and you know we're we're confessing to each other and we're 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 having fellowship and all that so to speak. And somebody I think offhand said, "We well, you know the only thing we don't have is uh, is our own worship music. You know we don't have we don't have music." <laughs> and I and I thought to myself and I and said as I recall like, "Oh well, I'll work on that because that's kind of what I do. So like, let me see if I can't write us something." And so I basically just got that idea in my head of like, oh man, like I want to write because I had never really written. I'd reworked some old hymns and I had like, you know, like written like new melodies for some old, super like old hundreds of years old, uh, hymn texts and stuff like that as in different seasons of my career and, and done some experiments and stuff like that. But I'd never really sat down and written a worship song like you would, like we've been describing like that kind of right. congregational, everybody get up in church and sing a song. I never really, I'd never really written a song like that before um, in my own language. And I thought, you know what, you know what I want to do? I want to write the best worship song that I've never written, and but have it be about this, have it be about this, uh, and 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 so the thing that I, the great play on words that I found, the thing that I decided I would anchor it to, is alcohol. And so as you were describing it, like the whole video and the song itself it really it was it it took me a while to kind of really craft it but it's essentially a a song that could easily be mistaken as a worship song about rain yeah but the whole song is about i mean well it's about alcohol um (laughs) but it's but really i use that as a catch-all term to be about you know um gathering with those people in that place right and kind of finding community again finding congregation outside of the church um in a place and by a name that had been previously at at least frowned upon if not prohibited and so um and, and so the whole song up until the last let's say 15 seconds you think you're listening to a a worship song last 15 seconds when it finally says uh so i'm calling out the only name that delivers me from guilt and shame is the big stanza at the end and then the whole thing breaks down and then i finally you think i'm going to say jesus or something and i say alcohol over and over again and and that was the first song i released from the record which interestingly i felt like was probably the least provocative song on the record um and i thought would be a pretty decent warm-up 
But I think people who were following, when you go through something hard and public and humiliating and, and, and shameful, which I did uh, with my divorce, you kind of, as a person who makes their living somewhat in the public, you, you don't, you're kind of left not knowing where you stand and you're kind of left not knowing where your people are and how they feel about you. And so I didn't really know what people were going to think. I didn't really know if people were interested in hearing me describe the world as I saw it. And if I would really even make music again, I took a little break for a few years while I was doing other things. Cause I also have some entrepreneurial spirit in me and I've, I have a few businesses that I run on the side. They're all music related and things like that. But and I'd focused my attention on those things for a few years and, and taken a break and then finally came back to music, which I'm fully back into now. But, um, and but I knew that the people who were really paying attention were not going to be surprised. Um, and I had really intentionally tried to drop a lot of good hints and Easter eggs throughout to prepare people. And certainly my good friends knew exactly where I was. And um, But what's interesting was that when people heard that song, their first impulse was, oh man, it's Derek Webb up to his old tricks again. And apparently this is a commentary on modern worship music and about how vapid it is and how it's, you know, like we need to, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a sharp critique of worship music and, and meant to make us all see how it really needs to be, you know, like about the true God and how we often make it about our idols and things like that. And what's interesting is like, I could see that. I could see how it could be seen that way. And I could see how for 10 years I trained people with the music I was putting out to for that to be the most likely thing that it was that that it was about or the way that they because what what wouldn't have been a consideration was or maybe he's had a really super fucking hard couple of years and he's been drinking a lot of alcohol and that's proven very comforting to him in the place of a god who appears not to be there um silence on the other end of the line so to speak and maybe that's a way that he's survived getting through um the initial stages of deconstruction that was not an option available to most people in their mm. imaginations. And so they thought here comes another sharp critique, you know, from, uh, from the neighborhood, um, you know, uh, professional profit or something. And, and, and I think that's an interesting byproduct. I think that's an interesting ancillary interpretation, not at all what I was imagining or did not intend. Um, it felt very desperate and confessional to me, but, um, the record goes obviously much further and it really does. I mean, um, it's, it's just an autopsy, the whole, uh, fingers crossed record to me of processing my way through what it feels like to lose a spouse, um, to, to commit acts that drives someone away and to force someone into the impossible situation of having to learn how to fall out of love with you. And, and, in parallel and at the same time processing disbelief in a God who appears not to be there. And, um, and you know, the one lights the fuse on the other, but then they become separate things and you process them and it just gives opportunity to a reckoning, um, and, um, spiritually. And, and, uh, and so the record is, is hard and it's heavy and it's sad, but you can dance to parts of it, I think. <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, 
in my professional life or otherwise, it was really hard. It took me a lot of years to figure out how to say what's in those 13 songs. And, um, but I'm real proud of it. And, and to me it was, and, and I hope anyone would, will forgive anything that will seem insensitive about this language, but it felt like a coming out. It felt like, um, and to my friends who are, um, some of my dearest friends who, um, who are, uh, who've gone through, um, a coming out, um, to their families, um, who are, you know, uh, who are gay and, and went through a really hard time of processing how in the world to find language to prepare the people who you deeply care about to learn something about you that is true, but unexpected. Um, I have talked about it with them and they, obviously I, I couldn't begin to imagine what they went through in that process, but they did at least empathize with me in saying like, yeah, I could see, I could see how it's akin to that. I can see how it's like, cause I remember before the record came out thinking, Oh man, like I need to talk to my brother. I need to talk to my parents. I've got a handful of friends I need to talk about. Most of those people knew because they knew me well, but it, it felt like going on the public record about something, uh, intimate and vulnerable and personal and, but important yeah. to me and something I wanted to be on the public record, you know, and that's what the record feels like to me. Yeah, yeah, that that's very well said, and I I think the the album is a very good representation to what you intended to say. I mean, it's mm. there's just so many um, so many tracks that say, I mean, all of the tracks. It it's just a really as you said, it's like a heavy album, but it's that's there's so much in each track and each song that you can sort of unpack and, and look at in, in different ways and, and consider. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of people that have gone through deconstruction, as you said, of I, whether they've moved from a fundamentalist thing to something, uh, less so what, you know, there's, yeah. there is, uh, this element of, of real pain and grief. It's not, yeah. It's not a, a simple thing, um, and a, yeah. and I, I think your your album is a, a very very strong testament to that. I really appreciate it, and to me, it felt it is heavy, but it felt like a a heaviness that leads to a lightness. I mean, it it because by the end of it, and I can tell you that, like in terms of where I'm in my feelings about those things now, I've never been happier. I've never felt more liberated or free. I've never felt more free of burden. Yeah. Um, than I do now. And, and it was a result of what's in those songs. And, and I remember there being a moment where I, as I said before, I didn't know if I would even make music again. I didn't know how do I even describe this? How do I even go about the process of trying to write this? And what finally tipped me over the edge, and I'm curious if this might be um, a, a segue into the last bit here, but was thinking to myself like, okay, I'm going through this. I'm going through two very painful things at once. These, these, simultaneous two divorces, vertical, horizontal. And as I'm looking around for comfort in the way of music and soundtrack, I just wasn't finding much. I wasn't finding a lot of music that was especially comforting to me or that had really documented that pro- either of those processes. Um, it was really hard and I really needed it and I, and, and I mostly couldn't find it. And my, my creative MO in my, my life tends to be what I need and can't find, I make. Right. Um, yeah. That's what's led me into doing most of the things I've done in my career. And um, now, what I did have and find was 
um, another one, uh, one of your previous guests, Dave Bazan, who is a, is a friend. He's a, he's a, I would, I would consider him a good friend. I mean, he, I'm a, I'm a way bigger fan of his than we are friends by, by, <laughs> by a long stretch. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his and, and I found his, and it's, and this is, all of this is, is are things that, that he has given me some very good counsel um, over the years in terms of navigating and finding my way through and how to do it's tricky. But, um, but he, uh, his music was extremely comforting and extremely nourishing to me. I feel like when you're, when you're coming into the church, you come down the aisle, they hand you a Bible and, and a couple of books and whatever they give you. When you're leaving the church, when you're exiting, they basically hand you a Dave Bazan record. You know, they, <laughs> you know, they, they hand you Cursor Branches. They hand you Strange Negotiations. I mean, yeah, the, the, you know, his music. He he is one of the very few people, man. You know, it's I'm I'm touched as I'm talking about it. Um, one of the very few people who has as thoughtfully and lovingly and carefully and as in, as and in such an articulate way, really, you know journaled um that process and his journey and 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 to great personal at great personal expense you know i mean he's he's um it's it's there's been a cost to to a guy like him to choosing to address those things little as i know it it feels to him like a choice um to do it but and you know, it, it, there were many moments that it, it just fucking kept me alive. It, 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 because something about the providing of language and soundtrack and hearing someone who I knew understood and I knew had gone before me and I couldn't have been more grateful and felt less alone. And, um, it meant everything to me. There were a lot of hard moments, a lot of hard nights. Um, um, that, that music saved me in a lot of ways. And music's never really done that for me. I've never been especially emotional about it, about music. And I've never been super deeply attached to music in the way that, for instance, I am about movies, like visual, visual storytelling and narrative is the thing that really gets down to my soul. But music is important to me, but, but, but it, but Dave's music during these years, went somewhere that music had not for me ever previously. And, yeah. and so, and, and so what I'm trying to say is I knew that his music was there. I knew that people, you know, were finding him and those are those records. And I, and that was comforting, but I was like, you know, it's, it's not enough. Like there should be more. And for just, and because people need to know they're not alone. People need to know that, that there are good things on the other side. It's not just grief and deconstruction, but it's reconstruction and joy and, and freedom and, and new life even that can come. And ironically, I, I hear the irony of all the, let that language sounding very much like the advertisement for, um, for, you know, the Christian gospel, but I have found all that on the other side and people need to know, and they need to know they're not alone. Um, and yep. so I really it became, and that was eventually the thing that, that, tipped me over into deciding I had to finish this record. I had to continue to make music because I wanted to be part of that witness that Dave has so faithfully um, done for so many years. I wanted to be part of that um, trajectory and, 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 um, and that legacy. I wanted to be part of that. And I wanted to be that soft place that people could land if, if they found themselves in similar circumstances and needed soundtrack 
I wanted to help provide it if I could. And that's what eventually pushed me back into music. Um, yeah. And so I, anyway, yeah. yeah, no. And that's, that's, I, I think that's wonderful because I mean, the more sort of albums that, um, that are out there that sort of address these, these particular experiences, because there is something, um, there's something about them, you know, there's something about yeah. going through some really <laughs> shit days and months and years where That's you're, right. where you're, um, where the, the thing that you constructed your, your whole outlook on life around, um, starts to yeah. fall apart. Um, and, and music and art is a place where people go for comfort. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, even beyond, be, even beyond what you've, what you've done with the record, you, you've taken it to another sort of level that I, I um, through your podcast that you started, um, which you basically, uh, you reached out and let people know like, Hey, I put this album out here. Um, it's like, there's, uh, this chronicles me, uh, losing my faith. <laughs> this yeah. chronicles me, um, starting over with, with, with my, with my belief and with, so much of the way I see the world and, and all of this, um, and you're not alone. And so just call me up and we'll, we'll talk about the music. We'll <laughs> talk about what you want to, you want to talk about. Um, and, uh, I mean that, and I, I, I honestly, I love the name of your podcast a lot. Like the airing of grief, I think is such a, a, a great way to, um, mm. to, encapsulate what that is because because yes i mean there is a lot as you said and as as i can attest to um as a, a lot of people can attest to there is so much good on the other side of 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 leaving these harmful beliefs behind um they there's a grieving process that has to happen when you let them go um yeah and so the way in which you frame it like that um I think is just very, very powerful, and it it lends it, it lends uh, a weight to the story mm. that uh, that I think people again people that have a different life experience that they didn't have a faith and then lose it, um, or have a faith and then have it radically change mm. in a painful way. Um, don't necessarily understand what it means to grieve that they might see it and say, yeah. oh, "Well, you're 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 better off now, right?" I mean, right. Well, yeah, yes, I am, but that doesn't mean it didn't suck, <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> and know? it's and it's and it's just like situations where people go through hard things that are unrelated to spirituality, and they live with the pain of it for a long time, and then as that pain starts to subside, you actually miss the pain, not because you like it. But because you lived with it for so long, right? And um, you know, you live like you, you, as you start to become less preoccupied with the absence of something, you start to miss that ache, even if you're healthier and happier because you lived with it for so long. And um, and I think it dignifies it to frame it as a process, a grief process, and and that that is how a lot of people um, experience it. And and yeah, you know, and my my thing with the airing of grief was also like even if someone's grief is with me and they're mad and they want to evangelize me or berate me about, you know, how could you have, have, you know, go, how can you go from all these years of 
professing this in such a public way and even writing songs that were that affected me in my own spiritual beliefs and then go here how could you do it and i'm mad about that or i i want to you know you know try and persuade you otherwise you know or if your grief was with the institution of the church and not even with the idea of god at all or with god or jesus or whatever whatever it is i just wanted to my instinct was to try and create if i could facilitate a safe place for people to be able to say what they needed to say and get it off their chest and um and to process it a little bit with somebody who could understand and and i mean and the way that we kind of stumbled and backed into the whole podcast was that the initial response to the record didn't seem like on social media and wherever i could kind of discern it didn't really seem to be about the record it seemed to to light the fuse on people wanting to tell their stories of spiritual heartache or transition as you've described or deconstruction or whatever it was it made people want to talk about that right and and so almost none of the response to the record was about the record and i thought that was fascinating and yeah. and i and i try to make it my job to notice things like that and to and those are coordinates to me those are significant um i, I find meaning in those patterns and um, i'm a hyper analytical detail rational type thinker and so i and and so as i was seeing that talking to some pals about that the idea came up you know of like we should create a place for this to happen intentionally and in an organized way as opposed to unintentionally in a clumsy way that you know um because it's going to happen either way people seem to want to tell these stories so let's either provide a way for them to do it that could have some greater scale or meaning or you know, or, or, you know, maybe that's a wasted opportunity because I think something meaningful could happen. And so it started, yeah, as like just making kind of putting the offer out online of saying, if you want to write a letter to tell your story, or if you want to talk to me on the phone every, you know, every day for an hour or so, I'm going to spend 10 minutes at a time taking phone calls over Skype. And, and if you want to talk, but tell me your story or air whatever grief you have, you know, you can schedule 10 minutes and let's get on the phone and let's talk and we'll make it anonymous. We'll bleep your name out, but we, but I want to record them all because I feel like for every person who might be willing to make a phone call or write a letter, there's going to be 50 who wouldn't. Right. But I'm suspicious that they might find themselves resonant with or wrapped up in the language of some of those stories that someone was willing to tell. And I wanted for the benefit of those people to record them. And I, we weren't even sure what we were going to do with it at first. I just knew I wanted to do that. And maybe it would just be for me and the person that I would speak to on these calls, but, but it might be more, there might be more. And, and something about the airing of grief wasn't just about grief, but also like we wanted to air it. Like we wanted to put it on the air. We wanted to take it out into the world and for the benefit of people who felt isolated alone and alone and hopeless, um, that they might feel different. Um, and, and, um, so we started, I started recording these phone calls and just the stories immediately from the get go were incredible. I couldn't believe what people were willing to share and what people had gone through. And, and, um, and so I had a, a handful of friends and Jamie Lee Finch, who you mentioned before is one of our producers. And, um, uh, my friend Kevin McDougal and my friend John Allen, um, the four of us decided to band together. We, we're we're a very uh, we have a a, a a lot of weird skills between the four of us, and we decided 
to work together on this, to arrange it and curate it by topic, and to kind of like put the calls together um, unedited, um, just a call or two, um, and then um, a letter read by one of our producers into each episode and make these kind of short episodes of people telling their stories. And, and, um, and we started doing it and just immediately really drafting behind podcasts like yours and conversations that folks, you know, folks like you and, and even, and even, you know, on the bleeding edge of it, like folks like the liturgist or the inglorious pastors, or there's like a lot of funny and strange and, um, the deconstructionist guys or, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that are, that it seems like it's a conversation that wants to be had. It's like people want to congregate and talk about it or be heard or, or hear people's stories to be comforted or, um, and so we started to put it out in the world and just immediately found, um, I mean, literally in the first week, the stories that came back to us, just of the few people who were listening were so meaningful to us that we're like, okay, well, this is a thing we need to figure out how to sustain and, and we want to keep doing. And, and I, and I, I've done more than a hundred of these calls now. Oh, um, wow. yeah. And, um, and that we've recorded and we're planning our second season We're we're two thirds of the way, almost done with our first season of the, of the podcast and planning our second season and planning even live events where we're going to tour and I'll play songs from the new record and we'll bring Jamie and Kevin out with us and we'll have conversations live with a group of people and, and talk and deconstruct and process and weep or laugh or argue, whatever people want to do. And, um, and so it, it, it feels significant to me. It feels meaningful and it feels like a thing that is going to be part of my life for the next few years. And, um, so it's been really surprising and gratifying and like a strange ancillary thing that has come from the record, um, that was unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it, it does feel like, it does feel like this outgrowth, you know, like this, this thing that, that came from the same place as your record. And it's really neat. It's like, it's a very, very, I think, unique and interesting way to, uh, to have a podcast. Like you, uh, you made an album, it had a reaction and the, the reaction is this, this whole other thing. Um, and it's, it's really exciting uh, to see and it's really, um, really rewarding to listen to. Like you said, there's a, I mean, there is something sort of happening with, in the water. Like yes, these conversations keep happening. They, they, they do. They, they need, like there are kindred sort of, uh, podcasts and kindred sort of conversations and communities that are popping up and um, yeah, it, it needs to happen. And so I'm, people are recongregating. I mean, that's what's yeah. happening because because we're desperate for it, you know. And um, and uh, we need to know that we're not alone, and we're not. Right. Um, you yeah. know, we're really not. There there are arguably more people who've been recycled through the church and are now on the other side of it um, in this cloud of invisible witnesses than there are even currently in it. I mean, you know, it's, you know, the church is constantly generating (laughs) deconverts. And so there's a steady supply who need good resources and a safe place and a soft place to land. And and that's why I so love what you're doing. And, um, and, you know, it certainly was a real um, lighthouse for us, you know, in terms of like, and, and showing us the way and also telling us that it was going to be worth doing it, that there were people who, cared enough to put some intention behind it. And, you know, so we're certainly, um, you know, uh, you know, starting to kind of crawl down the path that 
you and others have kind of cleared and paved a little bit. So, you know, it's, um, so I'm, 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 I'm proud of this work, you know, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you should be, it's, it's really great. Um, where, where can people find the podcast? Where can they find your, yeah. your music? Um, I, uh, I know I've I've had you on the phone here for almost for over an hour and a half now. So I know, and I told you I was going to try to be so short. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's perfect. I think everything you've shared, now. everything you've shared um, has been great. So I want. Oh but yeah, I, no, it's been such a pleasure. So the my, the it's it's all pretty easy. My music side of things is just at DerekWeb.com, which is D E R E K W E B B. That's uh that's where you can find my music and touring and stuff like that, and buy records and. And then the podcast is at uh, theairingofgrief.com. And it's also just available anywhere people go looking for podcasts. Um, you can find it at The Airing of Grief. And, uh, and, we're, and you know, we're, we're, um, and we still, um, you know, are taking calls. We're kind of shut down for a minute while we transition seasons. But that's going to be a permanent part of what we're doing moving forward is we want anyone who's listening to at any point be able to hijack and take it over and be the podcast and be on it. And, um, we like that it feels democratic and it feels, um, fair and equal and we want everyone to have a chance to speak. And, um, so yeah, that's the thing we're pursuing on into the year. And, um, but, uh, but that, that's where you can find us. Awesome. Um, anything else I didn't, didn't mention or get, get to ask you that uh, we should add here at the end? Um, Oh, surely, if I haven't said it in the last <laughs> half, it's, it's, it shouldn't be said at this point. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you again for uh, for coming on the show and for talking about your music and your career. I think um, there's so much that that the listeners, you know, will will resonate with, um, and uh, I'm thankful for for where you are now too, and uh, and I'm I'm glad you're continuing to share your perspective on the world. So thank you for oh, so much for coming on. It's just been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. The reason it's been so long since we talked I'm not ready to show up and feel nothing I don't need feel sad anymore just always looking for your replacement I still believe